Hello and welcome. My name's Karen O'Connor and this is Things That Make You Go Hmm. This is your podcast to help you make the most of the wisdom and experience that comes with getting that little bit older. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Deirdre. I can't actually pronounce your last name. Brand, Brandner. Brandner. You're a psychologist. Welcome, Deirdre. Thank you so much for having me on today and uh, talking all things in this space. I'm looking forward to it. I am too, because you're a psychologist and you specialise in supporting families. And when I put a call out to talk about grief and what have you, you responded with a fabulous, you sent me a fabulous email and I was just like, oh my goodness, yes, we need to look at things from that angle because most of my audience are middle-aged, but it never stops you never get the end having to deal with your children and support your children. And then you got grandchildren, you got other children around you. So it's a really relevant topic. And, and I also want to talk about the how to be a rainbow in the background as well. <laughs> and coming out of COVID and everything. So let's start with that, because explain to me about the different types of grief, because it's not just when somebody dies, is it? It's not, it's not. And I think that we can very much fail to recognize what's happening for other people because people can be displaying those significant symptoms of grief. And we might say you haven't lost someone or you haven't lost someone close to you. And we we so much identify grief with the death of a person or the death of a loved one. And what we know is that grief has many forms and it can be for, for what was a lot of us, particularly during COVID, a loss of opportunity or a loss of an experience that we thought we were going to have, or the loss of a time. So I think for many of us, particularly during COVID, it might have been the loss of the grief of failing to get to see, I don't know, our children graduate, or being unable to be there for a special birthday and or a special anniversary, or the grief about things that we booked and look forward to that then had to be cancelled. When we talked about a lot of the emotions that we saw people exhibiting, we talked a lot about anxiety, stress and low mood, but we didn't actually talk a lot about grief, what we were missing out on and what we'd had to let go of. So it's very important that we understand what grief looks like for different people. And like for many things, there's no definitive definition that we should actually be sticking with. We need to be flexible about this. And it's interesting because I suppose we're getting, talking about grief is getting easier, but there's still an almost taboo about grieving, isn't there? If you're going to grieve, you go and do it in private and then you put on face to the rest of the world and you're okay, really. (laughs) And you know what? You're exactly right. It's like a lot of emotions. It's about, that's an unpleasant emotion. So we're not going to share it. We're going to take our own private time to, to unpack that. And also I think people put a timeline, oh, they're still grieving or, oh, they're still feeling sad about that or they haven't managed to move on. As individuals, we've got different capacities to navigate emotional pathways, depending on what's happening for us, depending on what our personality is, what our temperament is, what our experience has been. So the perception and judgment around grief, you're exactly right, can take a toll on how we get to experience. and. We know that what people want for many feelings is acknowledgement that you're having this feeling and acceptance that it's okay. It's what our psychologists and counsellors have to do every day. It's called unconditional positive regard. It's saying, whatever you're going through, it's not my experience, it's your experience, but I'm here for you. So when people say, what do I say to someone who's grieving? How can I help? There isn't the perfect thing to say, but saying that, you hate seeing them feel like this, you wish things were okay, but you understand they're not, but you're here for them if you need. And that is the most powerful thing we can do because it can be just as hard for people around someone who's grieving as the person who's doing the grieving because there can be an awkwardness. I don't know what to say. And I think we need to have those conversations. I know myself that we often don't as parents, whether it's with little kids, teenagers or young adults, depending on what's happened in your life, you may not have ever had to coach them or support them about what to say to a friend who's lost someone close to them. And I think that's really important 
chat to have at some stage with your children because sometimes waiting to the time where you know their best mate's parents passed away often a lot of them don't know how to connect with their peer and support them and sometimes we know that when we feel awkward about what to say we avoid the situation so we don't visit our friend or we don't send a message or or an email or a FaceTime or something because we don't know what we have to say so I think having good conversations with the people in our lives about how you might navigate that's really useful about community because I think just extrapolating from what you said if we avoid those situations because we don't know what to say that then takes away the community from that person who's grieving and the support so they feel more alone than they normally would and then that exacerbates their whole situation doesn't it and then bringing COVID into that scenario as well where we couldn't physically be with somebody just yeah that's a really interesting insight into that experience because we know that there are a lot of people who are still processing grief now so they families who'd lost loved ones during COVID but were unable to be with community, to be with their village, whether that's family, whether that's people who travelled that journey with them already. It might have been someone who'd been facing an illness or someone was in an aged care facility. So they lost that experience. So they feel like there's never been quite that sense of closure. And I know that for some families now, they're trying to do different ways to, you know, have an anniversary or a celebration of someone that they lost during that time because they didn't feel they got to do it with that community. And we know that we're humans, we are social beings. The most important thing for our physical health, our mental health and our emotional health is to connect with others. And that's why community at every stage is important, but particularly when times are tough. And you're losing a loved one and you need those people around you. So, look, I do think there were some advantages. The only advantages I can think of is that there was, we'd had streaming services for funerals and things like that, but that took on a whole different experience in COVID. And I know that for our family, my sister-in-law passed away suddenly and we'd planned this funeral. I'm from Melbourne, everyone. We planned this funeral. The funeral was supposed to happen on the Friday and Thursday night. Daniel Andrews caused called a snap lockdown. So we went from having a funeral and a process where we're all going to be able to come together to grieve to 10 people could go and the rest of us watched it online. So that was that was tough, but there were some adjustments we did make to that. I know that at least more people got to attend a funeral virtually than perhaps ever before once upon a time you would say to yourself I can't make the funeral I've got sick kids or I've got this commitment but now at least we've adjusted to if I can't be there in that moment I can watch this this stream service later on and then I can reach out my own way to that family and I can feel a sense of connectedness because there's nothing worse than if you can't be there to be part of a grieving process but you still want to be able to give back that was one small advantage that our accessibility to be in the moment where the you know where those rituals happen, we can still be a part of that. But community is essential at every stage. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think over the last probably 30 years or so, our involvement in community in a lot of our societies has decreased massively. It's interesting, I'm having a conversation with one of my kids about how important it is to have a friendship group around you And they've not placed a lot of importance on it. And now they're beginning to realise that it's actually pretty crucial because it's difficult to make a solid decision unless you bounced it off various people. Absolutely. And you know what? It's a really interesting point you made because for a lot of people, connection with others, friendships, that became quite a very difficult moment for lots of age groups, whether it was parents bringing newborns home from hospital think about all the moments in your journey as a parent or as an adult of ways you connect with people at different parts of your life I remember when I had my children in the olden days and I had mother's group that we went along to or I had kindy and I stood up at the front and waited for pickup and then they started school and I went to the first parents night or they started their secondary school and there was a night for year seven parents so 
all those moments were opportunities to start new connections, new relationships, new friendships that often tracked through for the next six years or even longer. So in COVID, lots of us were deprived of those opportunities to start that journey of friendship, to start that connection with a community that was relevant to you at that stage in your life. And the same for young people. Think about all those those students who started the first year of uni without actually sitting foot on the grounds, without doing O-week orientation week or the opportunity to get involved in different clubs and different activities. So no wonder the idea of friendship and connection became exhausting and daunting as a result of COVID because we had to put so much effort into it. And I know recently, it was actually last weekend, I contributed to an article that was in the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun down here in Melbourne. And it was all about a recent study that showed the detrimental effect of parents' mental health when they're not having social connection, when they're not having social interactions. So recent studies showed that there was a correlation between overall psychological well-being and the ability of parents to actually have a break from their children and be out there connecting and socialising with adults. So it wasn't just a free, don't feel guilty about leaving kids at home with babysitter. It was actually exactly what you're saying about how crucial friendship and community is to whatever stage we are at in our journey, whether we're 15, 20, 45 or 55, it's the same. It's the same need for connection. Somebody doesn't, can't see that. How do you actually talk to them about that kind of thing? Because you just get poo-pooed off, don't you? I think, and can I tell you, that it's the gentle dropping of information. I think all of us know, no matter who we're interacting with, whether it's an, a child, an adult child or a partner, being direct and blunt is not always the best way to get them to seeing, considering another perspective, okay? So it is, and if we say, I find this, or did you know that, I always feel like the wall really goes up. It's just this massive pushback. And no one wants to be told that what they're doing perhaps isn't the best course of action. But sometimes it's about reflecting on times that you've noticed they were happier that you notice that, you know, I remember when you used to play with the guys you went through year 12 with. Yeah, whatever happened to that? You guys used to have a great time. So actually giving concrete experiences that just, it's just dropping that little golden nugget there and waiting for it to be collected is a safer way. And it might even be what you model. You might say, oh gosh, I really miss COVID. We didn't do book club. I'm going to make an effort. And I make sure I get that group together. So sometimes gentle reflecting or modelling can gently give them that sort of drop of information that they might need that might sit and hopefully ferment down the track. Because that adage that you can take a horse to water but you can't make them drink is never so accurate when we are trying to give offer words of wisdom. True, absolutely true. Children and teenagers grieve in a different way to adults I was going to say grown-ups then to grown-ups I don't feel like I'm a grown-up I might be I don't an think adult, we ever but... are a grown-up I don't want to be a grown-up <laughs> <laughs> I still say I want to be such and such when I grow up <laughs> yeah, absolutely you know obviously grief is it does have a developmental aspect to it based on cognition the idea of present not present whatever beliefs you might have as a family but what we know is children's experience of understanding that someone's died whether it's a pet whether it's a family member that idea of constant and then absence is quite it's abstract death is abstract to them and but we know what we do know is it's really important to use appropriate language when we talk about grief with children. What we know, what is really unhelpful to say is they passed away or they went to sleep because that's, so he went to sleep one day and he didn't wake up. If you want to start out with bad bad bedtime routines, throw that one in. And also passed away. What does that mean? Passed away to where? So it is better as hard as it can be as an adult to say, grandpa died. We're really sad. Grandpa died. Grandpa was really sick. The doctors weren't able to help him and he died. So we need to be explicit about the language we use 
even though that will usually make us way more uncomfortable than them. We also need to be understanding that just because a child doesn't register that information immediately does not mean that they haven't taken it on board. You might need to, they might come back to you two days later and say, where's grandpa? And you might have to explain that again and again for them to have this unusual understanding because it's not every day. It's something that you get used to hearing. Sometimes parents become very frustrated and overwhelmed when their child's still asking the same question because it's triggering for them. So I always tell the families, be aware of that. And also don't have expectations around what to what you, what are the rights and wrongs of how children grieve or even how teenagers grieve. There is definitely, like for us as adults, no rule book. Being there for children, explaining what will still be the same in their lives is really important. We will stick it to go to nannies. Grandpa won't be. We can do things that they might want to put up special photos of them or find a way to remember them in a positive way. Be honest that saying mummy might be crying a lot or dad might be really upset because he loved this person so much. And when we know that when someone's died, it means we can't see them anymore, that can make us sad because we miss them. So it's really taking it back to that very basic level. One of the questions I always get asked is, should children go to the funeral? That, again, is dependent on the age of the child, their ability to understand what's going on. Um, Children are not going to feel that they've missed out on grieving a relative if they don't go to a funeral. I think we have this idea that they have to go through this motion to be able to understand death. I've been to plenty of funerals, particularly people who've died tragically and suddenly, and going to that funeral doesn't make their death seem any more understandable for me, so why should it for them? Be led by your child's age, behavioural needs, and what you as a parent know that they can cope with because you are the best judge of your child or your teenager's behaviour. But if you've got a teen who says, I don't want to go, you do not make them go. And don't say things like, oh, you're going to regret it if you don't go. No, they won't. You might say, look, you know what? I understand this is difficult for you. If you don't feel comfortable going, there's plenty of other ways that you can remember. So I want to talk about the different things that we might grieve over because as we're having this conversation and we're talking about somebody close to us that's died, but we can be quite judgmental when somebody gets upset about something that we wouldn't get upset about. Or we go, why are you still upset about that? It was only your dog that died six months ago or something. We we really do pass judgment over it, don't we? Talk to me about that side of things. That's hard. And you know what? I think that's... Not everybody, some people like to see things very logical, very black and white. That's how they view the world and that keeps them safe. So they've almost got a hierarchy of this is how emotional you get to be about a person that's this close in your life and this close. So some people, that's the way their brain works. I get that. But we also need to be really understanding and flexible that all of us have a different depth of connection. And we know that there are, and I think a perfect example of this is when Shane Warne died or when the queen died. And it can be really difficult for some people to understand the deep sense of loss they felt when someone who they didn't know personally, but had always been part of their life, or they were always interested in what they were doing. So for many people, when someone that we don't have a direct connection with passes away, we can experience grieving, we can experience a sense of loss, of something that is no longer going to be available to it. I know that there were, I did an article um, because I was asked to about what to say to children when the Queen died. Even though whether you're a Republican or a Royalist, it doesn't matter. There were lots and lots of people and young people talking about this and trying to unpack what that meant for them. And I think grief can be about a person. It can be about a beautiful animal or pet who's brought such joy to your life. I've seen people grieve when they've had to move that move out of a house because that house represented memories. It represented a manifestation of experiences and letting go of that and not having that physical connection can be really hard for people. So I think it's really important that what is grief? It's missing something 
that you had or you wanted to have that you no longer have access to. It's much bigger than just a dear person that's close to you passing away. It can be so much more of that. Someone's journey and emotional response is different and I it's very unhelpful for us to pass judgment on people's different grief. And I think we can all wonder about it and we might say, gee, I didn't think there would be that many people that would be that upset when a 96-year-old woman passed away. But it's not that she was 96 and that she passed away. It was for them, that person had an ongoing presence their whole life. And now we're saying goodbye to that. What is it that, because I'm just thinking coming up to Christmas now, the Queen's died. We've had two and a half years of COVID. And like you say, I missed my daughter's graduation and I missed a formal and I missed all of that kind of thing. I was fortunate enough to do the last parent teacher in person. It's 23 years of parent teacher interviews. <laughs> well done. Congratulations. Parted <laughs> after that one. Um, but because Christmas just seems to bring in our society, obviously, just seems to bring everything up, doesn't it? Oh, doesn't it just? It's such, and it's not just Christmas, it's whatever coming together festival happens for you. So whatever your religion is, there will be people's experiences, celebrations that will bring you to come together. And that can often cause tension because it's usually because we're not always there by choice because it's an expectation. That's the first thing. Some people love Christmas. Other people go, oh, I've got to go. Okay, so remember we're all coming into the one situation with different feelings of why we need to be there. I think that for a lot of us, that it, particularly when we it's tied in with the end of a year, so whether it's you're celebrating or Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, it's it happens once a year. So sometimes this is built up in this crescendo of what it's like getting everybody in the one place at the one time who may have not had spent a lot of time together because we know that if you're spending Christmas Day with the people that you spend every Sunday with. We don't see the level of conflict and emotional outbursts, but it's bringing new interactions or interactions that we don't see as often into that arena. And we we get, you know, coming off of really busy weeks, we know the lead up to Christmas, the weeks that are frantic. So we're all a little bit frazzled. We're all a little bit heightened. Depending on where you are, it could be stinking hot or in Melbourne, freezing cold. So we're navigating all of that. We're finishing up that idea that everyone feels the need to catch up before the end of the year, even though it's still just 24 hours away. So there's a lot of pressure on us to have been on for that lead up. And then it meets at this, this crescendo of Christmas Day. And we it, a lot of stress is placed, financial stress, stress on parents, stress on those of us who are not very socially motivated about having to show up and be on. So if we put all those things together on paper, it is like the perfect storm. A lot of people ask me, Deidre, how do you navigate that? Go in with an exit plan, okay? Have in your mind how long you're going to be able to stay at this event, okay? And when it gets too much, having a feasible excuse to get yourself out of there without having a storm and slam the door or creating. Look at if there are people you know that might be triggering for, the, for you, talk to them early in the day and then avoid them as the day continues and perhaps when the alcohol is flowing, I don't know, whatever's happening. And I think going there with honestly a feeling of kindness and acceptance because often what people are projecting in those moments has got nothing to do with us. It's usually about what is going on for them. And that's very easy for me to say as a psychologist, but I think all of us can begin to understand that. I try to practice that at the moment because I am quite an impatient person. And when I'm coffee's not getting made because someone's chatting or they're on their phone, I try to remind myself that perhaps that's what that person needs at the moment. And what's the worst thing that could happen if I don't get my coffee on time? So I always try to think what is going on for that person that's impacting me and how can I address that so that I remain calm because we can't change other people's behaviour. We can only change the way we respond in that moment. Because it's got to be doubly hard or like 
10 times as hard when you're grieving for something as well, because you're going into this place and everybody, most people will probably say, how are you? How are you coping? Yeah. Being asked once is confronting enough, but being asked multiple times, (laughs) I can imagine would just be awful. And I think my favourite is having a line and you might say that line over and over again. Remember, people often ask, how are you going? Because they don't know what to say. I think for those people who are grieving, what is the answer? Hideous, terrible, I'm great. What is the answer to that question? So I think having, and it's probably sound very disingenuous, but having a rehearsed response, like, no, sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's tough. I think somewhere that allows you to sit in the middle is really important. If you feel you can be honest and say, I've been dreading, today's hard. People, be careful what you want to, if you want people to leave you alone, you might have a statement that gives you that space. Or if you really need people to know how you're truly feeling, then you have a response that, that communicates that. But I honestly think for most people, when they keep asking, how are you going? It is a genuine attempt for them to connect with you. And they can't know what you're experiencing. They can't begin to know. And people who, in their effort to try to connect with you, might say things like, yes, you know, this I lost this person, I lost that person, my dog died, neighbor died. Whatever it is, it's not going to be the same as it is for you because grief, like everything else, is an individual experience. So trying to have an exit plan for how much you can tolerate, having some responses, comebacks that get you through, okay, and finding someone that you can position yourself next to who you know isn't going to drain you and is going to be there as someone to get you through the day. Sometimes that might be someone who doesn't have very much to say (laughs) because talking about grief, talking about feelings is really tiring. And I think holding together the emotions of navigating a Christmas day or any special day is draining in itself. So I really want those people, whatever they're grieving, whether they're grieving that so-and-so should have been here for Christmas, they weren't, or last Christmas I was meant to be somewhere and I couldn't. We've still got plenty of people talking about previous Christmases and looking around the table at the people who aren't there that we wanted to have there. And being able to acknowledge that. And there's nothing wrong with being able to say, I really wish so-and-so was here today. I think it's okay to admit that you're missing someone and that you wish they were here. And I don't think that's necessarily bringing down the mood of the moment. It's honest. It's an honest communication. Isn't it funny? Because I can see that. And at the same time, I go, ooh, the reaction to that would be really quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting. I think it's how comfortable you are with that. And I think we're all at different journeys in that in our lives. Often what you'll see is like little people will just say, wish granddad was here. And it's sometimes some people go, oh, is that the word granddad? But I actually think it's great. That kid's got the right idea because he's not coming in with any socially correctness. He's just calling it how it is. He does wish granddad was in. They might even say, I've seen this one, I liked it better when Nana was here. And I think the best comment to that is, yeah, so did I. You know, dot, no, muffling the child's mouth. We can't say that. We can take a leaf out of the the joyness of children and their insights into what are often difficult situations because we can learn a lot from that. I think a lot of us will be tiptoe walking around people that we know are grieving. Those of us who are grieving, We'll go in with a lump in our throat and a knot in our stomach of how am I going to get through today? But the reality is you will. You've got through many hideous days and you will get through this day. It won't be pleasant all the time. There might be moments of joy. There might be moments of peace. I was talking with a colleague the other day and she had been working with a client navigating this grief process and she used a really great term. She says, I just look for moments in the day that I call my islands of tranquility, where I take the time and it just feels okay. 
And even if it doesn't feel okay for the rest of the day, I know I had that moment. And I sort of, I think that's a really good image. It's a really good skill to consider. When you've got to navigate, probably I would imagine every day when you're in that grieving stage, but particularly on those challenging emotional moments. Going back to out of the mouth of babes, when my mum died, I think my eldest was about 10 at the time. And I got the phone call to say she died. (laughs) And obviously I was heartbroken. She was in England. We were in Australia. But my eldest, I picture him, he was actually hopping from one foot to the other with agitation. In the end, I said to him, what's the matter? And he said, I'm really sad that grandma died, but I'm not upset. Why are you upset? How marvellous. How brilliant is he? at actually articulating the thoughts of a young person because his sadness, and he was sad. Yeah, absolutely. But his sadness didn't manifest in the upsetness of you. And I think it's a really good moment for this, to have that conversation is when people feel sad about certain things, this is how they show it. And when people feel sad about certain things, this is how they show it. And there's no right and wrong. But we know that sometimes children's questions can be really confronting and quite blunt for us when, they, when they're thrown at us. And we want to be able to, I think we so as parents want to say the right thing. And we think, gosh, if we get it wrong and I say the wrong thing, they're going to have issues with death for their whole life. They won't. Okay. And I've seen that before. We've got, I don't know how many of you have had when a family pet has died and two of your children might be just heartbroken. And the third one goes, so can we get a cat now? Like they've just skipped over. <laughs> and I actually think that those moments, like every one of those moments where you go, oh, my God, it's fantastic as a moment to helping your other children understand grief at different levels, to understand that for Matthew, yeah, the cat's, the dog's dead. For him, he's moved on to the next stage of what he would like to happen in our lives. And that we can't judge him from that. It's not about being rude. It's not about, it's about different experiences of an event and everyone's entitled to that. But I think we spend a lot of time worrying about um, people in our family and how they respond to grief and the idea of they're still crying or they're not crying enough or they only cried at the funeral or the only cried when they, it's so diverse that we could just do our head in around that. And what I want to tell you is all you need to say to people in your world and your family is every feeling you have is okay. If you want to cry, if you want to talk about it, if there's something I can do to help you, I'm here. And that is the best advice you can give them. You can read every book on grief. You can listen to experts like me, but being open and supportive and accepting are the three key things to think about. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think quite naturally we judge other people's responses to how we'd respond. We yep. don't necessarily go, oh, that's them and they're going to do things differently. It's It can be quite a big step for most of us to let go of, it should be done this way. It can be. I went to, I think we're all, I think it's a cultural thing for many of us. If you grow up in an environment where overt displays of emotion don't occur as regularly, going to a funeral where people are visibly upset can be very triggering for us because if it's not something we're used to, we can find it quite overwhelming. And sometimes we do pass judgments. I was at a funeral recently and I know that the brother of the person who had passed away, see I'm using the word too, I shouldn't be, brother of the person who had died had held it together on the day and his eulogy was lovely and people were saying things like Matthew's doing okay and I felt like saying we make that judgment because he wasn't sobbing hysterically maybe he's not doing okay maybe it just looks different on the outside I think for us we want to think that Matthew's doing okay because he wasn't weeping and that makes us feel more comfortable that's so a I think- really interesting point. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's like we, it's okay. We judge people by how much of a happy front they're putting on almost. Or stoic, how stoic are they? When it might be, I, I know that when my children were at school, which was many years ago now, someone, a lovely mum's partner had passed away and said, oh, she's doing okay. She's still doing drop-off. And I'm like, see, 
we're grasping for normality because we so want to hope that her life is back to normal, whatever that, and it's never back to normal. But we look at it like that, or there's a sign it's okay because she's managing to drop the children at school. We don't know what happens to that poor woman after they've left the car. Yet I think in our hope to want things to be okay for a person, we look for those signs. Is that what's going on when somebody doesn't want to deal with somebody else, you know, when they're not used to the big emotions and they just want the emotions to go away and you're okay? Is that what's going on? That It is because it's more about if you do have a big feeling and you're going to show it or the idea of me being unable to tolerate the pain of thinking that you are still beside yourself in this ball of grief because it's if I know that's how much pain they're in I also as a friend as a even as a passerby am going to feel that too so it's almost like a self-preservation for ourselves that we don't want necessarily have to have all those experiences but logically we know that her life must be difficult and challenging. And it's about the idea for thinking that if things get back to normal in the observable behaviours, that for ourselves, it can also mean even if the most awful thing in the world happens, you can still go on and it's looking for some anchors in the world. But I think we all need to be honest that we can never truly know what's happening for someone else. And I would hate to think that people thought that I had to look like I had it all together. I'd like to be able to think that there might be people that I wanted to hold it together when I bought my bread and did my supermarket shopping. But perhaps when my girlfriend came over for a cup of tea and I got to sob, I think I would love to think that there are the moments where I can navigate that path as a person who's grieving, or I can also be there for that person without judgment. Which brings up the question for me, most of the time we are our harshest critics. So we might show kindness and empathy to somebody else, but we really, well, we're not putting on the brave face and we're not coping and we're not happy and we're not doing X, Y, Z. And so we can be really terrible to ourselves. We can be, we know that um, our instinct is not always to do self-care, okay, to look at what's actually feasible for us. Even just without being a parent, particularly being a parent guilt, there is nothing like that, okay? How many things, the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things. So whether you're grieving or whether you're just having a really difficult time, this idea of I'm just going to keep pushing forward, I just have to do this, I just have to do this, We know, as psychologist studies will show you time and time again, the have to, the pushing through, isn't making you more resilient. It's not building strength. It's actually weakening the structures. So whether you're grieving or you're having a difficult emotional time, you must take time out for yourself. You have to invest in having reasonable expectations of really what is absolutely necessary and what isn't necessary. It's the idea of not every moment of every day has to be productive. That sometimes being productive is lying on the couch reading a book. It is lying on top of an unmade bed. It is pushing all that washing into the laundry and just shutting the door. Because keep asking too much of yourself, it's the glass that gets drained dry. You have to have the moments to stop and allow for the refill. Because emotional energy and physical health needs nurturing and care. And as you said before, we're sometimes the worst at doing that. Even as I'm thinking, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the whole Christmas thing. How many of us would go, I just need to get my act together and stop being a wuss? where is that rule that I have to it's going to be a horrible Christmas if I haven't done this and this I'm a bad person if I say no actually you know what I'm not going to carols or the idea of it is okay to say no to events that emotionally or physically if you are not in the headspace for that the world will not crumble 
if you say no. You are the only person that think it's going to matter. So being mindful of what you can and can't cope with, because you think about it, if you're not in the space to have to go to something, but you put your big panties on and you march on out the door and you get in there and you do the fake being on and social, when you come home that night and get into bed, you have drained your reserves. And for what purpose? To prove that you could go? To give back to all those people? Wouldn't it be better if you said, you know what, I'm not in the headspace to go to that tonight. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to do something for myself. So when I get up the next morning, I'm maybe mildly more refreshed. Maybe there's a little bit more energy in my tank. So we have to be really smart for anyone, grieving or not grieving, about having a good look at are we how many have-tos or shoulds are we trying to undertake in our life and what is the impact on us long-term? Can I just say, like, one of my eldest was going through his year 12 exams and his teenage angst and everything. We all do our, this just put everything into perspective for me because, you know, you as parents, we spend our lives going, oh, my God, I've got to get it right. What if I say the wrong thing? Have I given them a defining moment there that's going to impact the rest of my life, of their lives? <laughs> and my eldest was having a moment and he said, you ruined my life because you never forced me to do soccer and swimming. And look at the body I've got now. I could look like an Adonis if you'd made me go to swimming every day. Isn't that priceless? That is one of the best moments of feedback I think you've ever received, isn't it? But you know what? We laugh. But there are some of us who at one point go, that's right, I should have had him doing violin. I should have had him in the athletic squad. It was bad parenting that I didn't allow him to do that. And we, you know what we do? We choose those moments and we make it about ourselves. I know my eldest is 29. So this is quite a few years ago when he was doing year 12 and I came home from work from my clinic and I walked in and he's a pretty, you know, together child and he, but his head was slumped in his hands and his books were everywhere and he was crying and he goes, Mum, it's just so hard. It's just too much. I can't do this. And I said, oh, my God, it's my fault. It's because I'm working too much. And he said to me, I kid you not, please, Mum, can we not make it about you? And I thought, he's right. He's right. Immediately, I decided that his emotional discomfort was a failing on my behalf. And I'm the psychologist. We all have these parenting fails, I'm telling you. It was, it was, but those moments are just, they are priceless because it puts everything into perspective. What Jamie hadn't remembered was that I did make him do swim squads for two and a half years and it was a battle to get him there three or four days a week and it was exhausting. And in the end, I just went, fine, don't do it if you don't <laughs> want to. <laughs> But we have to be careful to when we're presented with that information, we want to leap in and defend ourselves and go, no, hang on a minute. Instead of saying, if you're not happy with what's happening with your body, what could you do about it now? Like instead of looking back in retrospect about all the fails as parents, there is a danger in, and us psychologists are partly to blame for this, where for a time being there, everything that was going wrong in an adult person's life was a result of their childhood. And I think that's a ridiculous expectation on parents and an unfair reflection on the child and therefore the adult. There are wins during childhood and adolescence and there are disasters. And what are we going to do? We're going to look at this, this adolescents now who go, my adolescence was a disaster because there was COVID. You know what? There were lots of things that were a disaster because of COVID. Not your, I know your adolescence wasn't like what everybody else had, but that was a function of the environment that we had no control over. So I think that's really important that how many, we like to think we've got control over everything. And one thing that COVID did teach us that we don't. And coming back to grief, I think that's why it's such a difficult emotion because we're never ready for grief. And no one wants grief. And it's not really something that you can prepare for 
or control for. It honestly is something that all of us will experience and we'll experience it differently. And just thinking about that, if you've got the grief when it's going through the stage of anger mixed up with all the teenage hormones as well. Oh, it is a, it's a storm and a half. It is. It's a lit match on fireworks. But And look, you know what's interesting about anger? There's a lovely saying that says, if you peer behind anger, you'll find anxiety. A lot of the reason why we get angry is because there was ambiguity about what's happening. We weren't sure about a situation. And it our prediction, what we expected to happen, didn't happen. And when something happens that we're not prepared for, it creates uncertainty. And for some people, it will go two ways. Uncertainty creates an explosion, the fight, and some of us, uncertainty, grief, means that we retreat Um, and that's often a response we see in grief or when people are given news about a terminal illness or a really negative medical outcome we'll often specialists and my colleagues will often report that we often see the person who sits quietly and goes inward and the person who's angry and wants to know why and why did this happen and I'm going to sue someone. So each of us will manifest things different way when we hear news or unexpected events. It is all about just there's no right or wrong in this situation. No, absolutely not. And what is right or less wrong is choosing the pathway for us that's going to arrive at some peace. and. Everyone's path looks different and the timing of that looks different. And I'll often say to to families that your sadness and your grief will never, ever go away, but the knot will be. We often, someone quite famous, I can't think of their name right now, described grief as like this big ball of knotted wool and initially it's just so tightly meshed and intense, but slowly over time, the knots become looser, the ball becomes nooser, and we start to see some stream. It's still there and we still carry it with us, but it's not as intense. And some of us get scared of not grieving anymore of because we feel like if we stop grieving, then we're not respecting the person or the experience. And it meant less because we're not still grieving it. But you will always miss a person or an experience that you didn't get to have or that's no longer there. But it's being aware and mindful of the impact of that on your everyday functioning. Just, we're going to wrap up in a minute, but I want to talk to you about your books. Tell me about your books because they look fabulous. They are pretty fabulous. Bear learns how to be a rainbow and do bears who eat blueberries go bananas. These books came, these were a COVID response. As I said before, I was in Melbourne and the need for psychological support for families was through the roof and as it is now. And I kept thinking, what can I do? I can't see every family. Wait lists were forever. We know there weren't another enough psychologists for the need and there still isn't. So what I wanted to do, particularly for families, is how can I give a version of myself to families and I thought about writing another parenting book or this that and I thought well let's face it we don't have time to read that and if I've got a child who's feeling sad if I've got a child who's feeling worried what's a really easy way to have some practical skills I can put into place and I used to be a primary school teacher so I have a strong affiliation or some might say an addiction to children's storybooks my husband complains about it all the time. I, My cousin is a fantastic artist, Jennifer Whelan, and so we came together and we came up with this book series and each of them focuses on a psychological challenge that a child might have. So the first one with Bear learning how to be a rainbow is about what he does when he has different feelings and rainbow gives him advice. And it's almost like a mindful visualisation process. And in the back of each of the books, there's a toolkit for parents really simple because time is poor when you're parenting. Well, actually time's poor all the time, not just parenting. And there's a lovely toolkit, really simple ideas and strategies that are evidence-based. And that was a bit about lots of people have, I found that some books were too psychological 
and then some books were just too fluffy and I wanted something in the middle that brought both together and this one is this one's probably my favorite because poor bear gets a sticky thought he thinks that if he eats blueberries he's going to go bananas because he read about in the newspaper and it gets stuck and it follows him around everywhere and it wrecks his day and he meets a kind kookaburra who gives him some very good advice that sticky thoughts don't like to get caught you need to catch it in a bag shake it up and throw it away and it actually has the basis of the beginnings of what we do in cognitive behavioural therapy about putting a boundary around your worry thinking. So for all those people out there who have a sticky thought or worry thought, a really great strategy for us even as adults. So if you wake in the night, you can't get to sleep because there's a worry thought buzzing in your head. Write it down on a bit of paper. One short sentence, not a thesis, okay? One short sentence. Don't get to type it in your phone because that's unhelpful. Write it down, put it beside your bed, and I guarantee that your brain, and we know this, research tells us this, that your brain is learning to segment it and it's taken care of. It's a bit like when you're trying to remember a phone number and it goes around and around your head. Once you write it down, it frees up your brain for other interactions. Yeah, do bears learn how to? Do bears with blueberries go bananas? Sticky thoughts and what to do with them? Stick. It's time to wrap up. Thank you so much. I've so enjoyed today and I'm happy to come back on any time and talk about lots of different topics with you. That would actually be great. This is the kind of conversation I love having. So, yeah, I'm really happy. But, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you. No worries. Have a lovely day and a sane and calm festival break. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends, please. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some great ideas that can make a difference in your everyday life. Until next time.